All righty. Well, praise the Lord. God is good. Yep, he sure is. And thank God for the message that we heard in all of the hymns and songs this morning. Wasn't it a blessing? Thank God for it. Psalm number 54 in your Bibles, please. Psalm number 54. This is one of the rare psalms that we have a historical setting being given to us. Not all the psalms do this. Some of the psalms infer various historical settings in the Old Testament by just the mere message that they give. But this one, the Lord must have been in a good mood on the day that he wrote Psalm 54 because he chose to give us a definite historical marker. Notice in your Bible, Psalm 54, he says in the heading to the choir master with stringed instruments, a Moskel of David, when the Ziphites went and told Saul, is not David hiding among us? The historical setting for Psalm 54 is connected to the same chain of events that we previously studied together in Psalm 52. I'm going to read a sort of synopsis of now your text in the Old Testament that I'm going to be referencing really is 1 Samuel 21, 22, and 23. Now aren't you glad I'm not going to read all that for you this morning? But it's the reference, and so just be aware of that, and specifically the events of the Ziphites uh, essentially betraying David, um, that occurs in 1 Samuel, 1 Samuel chapter number 23. I'm going to read you a brief summary of the events that lead up to the writing of the 54th Psalm. David is tipped off by his dear friend Jonathan, who is also the son of the evil king Saul, that the king has determined to kill David. David then flees to the city of Nob and was given bread of the presence and the sword of Goliath. An evil man named Doag witnessed David receiving provision from Ahimelech, priest of Nob, and waited for the opportune time to disclose the ordeal to the king. Saul was in self-pity because no one would give him any pertinent information as to David's whereabouts. Remember, David lied to Ahimelech, and when Saul interrogated the priest, the evil king believed that Ahimelech was a co-conspirator with David, even though the priest told the absolute truth when pressed by Saul. Then Saul orders his guard to murder the priest of Nob along with their families, but the guards refused to do so out of reverence for the Lord and his priest. Doag then volunteers and kills Ahimelech and all the other priests of Nob, 85 men in total, with their families and their livestock. This is where the events which correspond to Psalm 54 lead us. In 1 Samuel 23, we learn the Philistines were attacking a border town in southern Israel called Kilah. David asked God if he should attack the Philistines and rescue the citizens of Kilah, and God gives David the green light to do so. David drives out the Philistines and rescues the city. 
Kyla was a walled city, and when Saul finds out about the situation, he says David has, quote, imprisoned himself by entering a town with gates and bars, end quote, 1 Samuel 23 and verse 7. The sole survivor of Doeg's mass murder at Nob was the son of Ahimelech named Abiathar. Abiathar brings David the sacred ephod, which was used by the priest to discern the will of God. David used the ephod to inquire whether or not the citizens of Kila would give him up to Saul when the wicked king surrounded the city, demanding the inhabitants surrender David to him. David then leaves the city of Kila before the arrival of Saul and his army and flees to the inhospitable desert region of Ziph. David was to find no safe quarter as he hides in Horesh. The Ziphites inform Saul that David is hiding in the wilderness there. 1 Samuel 23, 19 and 20 says, Is not David hiding among us in the strongholds at Horesh on the hill of Hekilah, south of Jeshimon? Now, O king, come down whenever it pleases you to do so, and we will be responsible for handing him over to the king. Saul then moves against David and pursues him out of Horesh, but the campaign is cut short when Saul gets word the Philistines are seeking to invade Israel further north. So Saul goes to defend his territory, and David slips through his fingers yet again. Later, when David and his men were hiding in Hekilah in the same southern region, the Ziphites went to Saul again and reported, Is not David hiding in the hill of Hekilah, which faces Jeshimon, 1 Samuel 26, 1. The title of Psalm 54 refers to these betrayals by the people of Ziph when it says, A maskel of David when the Ziphites had gone to Saul and said, Is not David hiding among us. This was an obvious and very bad period of time in the life of David. It was a very low ebb when it seemed as if the true king of Israel had nowhere to run and nowhere to hide. He found no safety even in the barren deserts and dense wildernesses of ancient Israel. He felt as if he could trust no one he saved an entire city called Kila from the Philistines, but could not even trust the people whom he just saved to not give him over when Saul surrounded the city. As the great Bible commentator, Mr. Derek Kidner says, quote, to be betrayed by Doag the Edomite had hardly been a surprise in 1 Samuel 22 and verse 22. But now David finds himself rejected by men, even of his own tribe. End quote. David was dejected and rejected. He was pursued and betrayed. Out of this dark, desperate, dangerous, and disillusioned place, we have one of the most profound declarations that God was David's sure and steadfast help in his time of need in the 54th Psalm. This morning, are you like David? Have you ever felt abandoned and betrayed by your family or friends? Perhaps it was a husband or wife, 
maybe by your own children or grandchildren. Perhaps a close confidant said some hurtful things about you in public and you felt betrayed by one of your closest allies. Do you feel as if no one can be trusted or like you have no one by your side? Like no one really cares for you at all. Then take a lesson from the king of Israel and turn to God in your bitterest moments of betrayal. That is what David did and that is what we need to do as well. I have three simple points this morning. Number one, the God of the betrayed. The God of the betrayed in Psalm 54 verses 1 through 3. Then sort of overlapping, the second point is the, the prayer of the betrayed. So the God of the betrayed, Psalm 54, 1 through 3, the prayer of the betrayed in Psalm 54, 2 through 7. And then last but not least, the conclusion is a man of sorrows. A man of sorrows. The God of the betrayed. If you have had some of your closest friends or family knife you in the back, just know that God has never liked that. I like the words of the great hymn. Mr. Joseph Scriven penned the hymn in 1855. It's excellent. He said, have we trials and temptations? Is there trouble anywhere? We should never be discouraged. Take it to the Lord in prayer. Can we find a friend so faithful who will all our sorrows share? Jesus knows our every weakness. Take it to the Lord in prayer. Take it to the Lord in prayer. In his arms he'll take and shield thee. Thou wilt find it. Find a solace there. The first thing that David does when he feels as if he's got nowhere to run, nowhere to hide, as if he can trust no one, he has no friends, even those that he has invested in, even those whom he has rescued and saved, those same people turn on David and betray him in his neediest moments. Take a lesson from King David. David takes his desperate feelings of betrayal to God himself. Folks, listen, God should be a first resource and not a last resort for us. There used to be an old bumper sticker, or, or uh, I, always, you know, I always pick on bumper stickers. Thank God people's not foolish enough to put those on their cars hardly anymore. You know, you don't see them as much as you used to, you know, years ago. But uh, there, was a, there was a bumper sticker, you know, it said, when all else fails, pray. Oh, well, you know, this is, I've been in that situation before. I'll exhaust all my resources, and then whenever I can't get the job done, I'll cry out to God. But that's not what David's like. David goes to God in Psalm 54 first, and David goes to God foremost. Be careful with when it seems as if the bottom drops out of your life and you've got something terrible happening, children, grandchildren not living for God, maybe saying bad things, evil things against you, and things that may not be true or misrepresentations of the truth. You feel betrayed. You feel heartbroken what they've said or done to you. Be careful instead of going to the prayer closet to pick up the phone and call one of your best friends and tell them about what's going on. See, this is how we are. Generally, uh, we want to tell other. We want to ask for prayer for us before we pray for us. God should be our number one resource. 
We should be going to him first and foremost. Follow the example of David. When David feels betrayed and he feels as if his back is against the wall, he cries out, he calls out to God. What's in a name? What's in a name? Look at verse 1. Oh God, save me by your name. I don't know about you, but it's been a long time since I've ever heard, or maybe I've never heard anybody in churches say, Lord, save me by your name. Well, names for us in our modern culture, they don't hold as much of a significance as they did in the ancient Jewish culture. In fact, we do not think in the same terms as the Israelites would have. In the Old Testament, names bore great significance and gave keen insights into who someone really was. A person's name really summed up and gave us some clear indications of the personality and character of that individual. I think of several key examples. When God reveals himself to Moses in Exodus chapter 3, one of the first things that God does is God tells Moses his name. God gives himself a name. He says, I am that I am. In the Hebrew Bible, it's the Hebrew consonants, yod Hey vav Hey. It's Yahweh. He says, I am Yahweh. I am that I am. What does this mean? I'm thinking also now, and we've been studying Ruth together on the Wednesday night prayer meeting and Bible study, and names even in the book of Ruth bore great significance. I think of the situation where Naomi, the mother-in-law of Ruth, her husband dies, her two sons die, she's left with two uh, stranded daughters-in-law, and the name Naomi means sweetness, it means graciousness. But at the end of chapter 1, after Naomi loses her husband and her two sons and they're stranded in Moab, she says, don't call me Naomi. She says, call me Mara. The name Mara means bitterness. And names in the Old Testament bore great significance. It tells us something about the person. She says, don't call me sweetness. Don't call me graciousness anymore. She said, call me Mara. She said, I left Israel full, and I've come back empty, and I'm bitter against the Lord. Remember that God changes Abraham's name from Abram to Abraham, a friend of God. God changes Jacob's name from Jacob, which means trickster or supplanter, to Israel, which means a prince with God. He really scored big on that one. I can say this, my wife scored big because her last name was Niederwerfer. <laughs> and we got married and the uh, real thick uh, three, what was it, how many syllables is that? I don't know, I stopped counting. But now it's just sharp. See, whenever I, uh, I did, looked at it when we were courting and dating, I said, you don't have an ulterior motive here, do you? But, you know, God changes our name, and God gives us a new name. There's a new name written down in glory, and it's mine. Yes, it's mine. And see, the idea here is that David is calling upon God to uphold his name. See, the name for God in the Old Testament, Yahweh, what does that mean? What's in this name? The Lord, as it's in our English Bibles, or as the 
Bible teachers and pastors and preachers and theologians of yesteryear used to say Jehovah. It's the name Jehovah. Well, there's no J's in Hebrew. I have to be a little nerdy for you this morning. Give you a little bit of proper grammar. There's no J in Hebrew. It's Yahweh. That's the proper pronunciation in English. But nevertheless, what does this name mean? What's in a name? Well, I'm glad you asked. Because in David asking God to save him by his name, we learn something about who God is and what God's like. First, David says in verse 1, he says it twice in this great psalm. He says, save me by your name in verse 1. But notice in verse 6, then he says, I will give thanks to your name, O Lord, for it, your name, is good. So he says, first, Lord, save me by your name. Then he said, Lord, I'm going to give thanks to your name, for your name is good. we got to figure out what's in the name. Well, the name Yahweh... In the simplest terms, it carries the idea of the self-existent, self-sufficient, eternal one. The self-existent, self-sufficient, eternal redeemer God. Think about this for just a moment. What's in a name? In verses 1 through 4, David uses the sort of generic name for God. God never has a generic name, but there is, you know, a sort of regular name for God, and it's the name in Hebrew, it's called Elohim. And this is the creator God that we first meet in Genesis chapter 1 and verse 1. In the beginning, Elohim, God, created the heavens and the earth. And that's a good name. It's a powerful name. Then in verse 4, you have a little bit more specific name. It's Adonai now, Adonai. In verse 4, he said, the Lord, Adonai, is the upholder of my life. And as the psalm moves forward, and as the intensity of the psalm builds, finally the cherry on top, David sort of brings out the covenant name of God, Yahweh. Yahweh is the one to whom I will give an offering of thanksgiving, a free will offering and a sacrifice. Yahweh is the one who his name is good. And this is a specific name. You see, there were many Elohim in the ancient world. The Canaanites had a god, Elohim, and the Jebusites and the Philistines and the, uh, all the other ites and so forth of the ancient uh, tribal world where Israel lived and existed at this time. They all had an Elohim, but there was only one Yahweh. And Yahweh was the one and only Redeemer God of the nation of Israel. This is the name that God gives to Moses, the sacred name, the covenant name of God. The name that only the Jews can call God by. And it's now the name that we call God by. This is important. Because while God is able to help anyone who calls upon his name, God needs help from no one. While we are dependent upon God for our sustenance and our sufficiency and our existence. God is not like that. Think about it this way. The angels in heaven, human beings on earth, time and space, matter, our physical universe, all of it depend upon God for it to keep functioning as it is. 
Our entire existence as we know it is dependent upon God. But see, God's not like that. God exists in and of himself. God depends on no one for anything at any time. God is self-sufficient in all times, always, every time, without a doubt. We find ourselves in an impossible situation and feeling betrayed by those around us. We must remember that Jesus said with God, all things are possible, Matthew 19 and verse 26. When we have someone close to us who has betrayed us, who has forsaken us, who has turned their back on us, who has done us wrong, even after we have done them right, it seems it is impossible for us to recover from the feelings and emotions associated with such a catastrophic event like that in our lives. If you've ever been knifed in the back, folks, it's one thing to have somebody that you really don't know betray you. It's one thing to have somebody maybe you're really not too crazy about betray you. But David had just saved the entire city of Kyla from the Philistines, and he can't even trust them. David has been anointed the true king of Israel, and the false king, the wicked king, the king Saul, is seeking his life. And all of Saul's guard and all of Saul's army, David is vastly outnumbered. He can trust no one. He's got just a few confidants. When we feel like it's impossible for us to recover from such a deep betrayal, we must cry out to God in faith, to the self-sufficient, self-existent Lord of the universe, so that he will be our all-sufficient. I'm not to be self-sufficient. I'm not to be self-dependent. I'm to be God-dependent. My sufficiency is not found in Joel Wayne Sharp Jr., thank God. My sufficiency is found in God, and God wants to be my all-sufficient. How is God able to be my all-sufficient? Because God is self-sufficient, and God being self-sufficient, he is eternally sufficient. This is how Jesus, this is how John, the gospel writer, presents Christ in the first chapter. How is Jesus able to give eternal life? Well, because he's eternal. How is God able to give me sufficiency? How is God able to give me healing? How is God able to give me strength in the moments of my deepest betrayals by those whom I love, by those whom I invested in? It's one of the tragic things about ministry. You work and you work and you work to try to invest and reach people. And even if they don't say evil, mean things to you, for them to not live for God is heartbreaking, isn't it? Think of the teen ministry here even, the children's groups that we have. There's workers week after week investing, and we hope that they come to faith in Christ. We hope that they live for the Lord. But the reality is, is ultimately they've got to make their own decisions, don't they? And when someone betrays God, we feel betrayed, don't we? The prayer of the betrayed. David asked God to rescue him. And this prayer that David prays in verses 2 through 7 has five parts. Five parts. First, he asked God to hear him in verse 2. 
What is this? Why does David feel like he needs to ask God to hear him? When we ask God to hear us, what we're doing is we're reminding ourselves that we are sinful creatures and that there is a certain humility when David approaches. Now, if David is the true king of Israel, the Lord is the king of kings in Israel. And David, when he comes to God, he humbles himself. Oh, God, hear me. When was the last time that we stopped in our prayer and prayed that we would be heard? Think about it this way. You and I have no rights to the throne room of God save for Jesus Christ. I want to read you a passage. I, I know I keep mentioning John because I've been studying John together or in my own personal studies. And maybe we'll end up studying that here at the Baptist Christian Church. But what I want to show you is a very powerful verse. John 11, verse 42. Have you ever seen this verse before? Perhaps one of the greatest verses on prayer that I've ever read. It's very short. It's just part of a verse. It's John eleven forty two. 42. Jesus says, Father, I know that you always hear me. Father, I know that you always hear me. Did you just catch what Jesus, the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity just said? The Father always hears Jesus' prayers. Did you know that? There's never been one prayer that Jesus has ever prayed that the Father doesn't hear him. Isn't that encouraging? Somebody says, I know. Well, I'm not Jesus. So I don't know if God hears my prayers. I want to read you two verses. These are just two that came up very quickly as I was thinking. And because of him, you are in Christ, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. That's 1 Corinthians 1 and verse 30. Colossians verse 1 and 27, chapter 1, 27 says, To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Now, in two key passages, and there's many more, and there's lots of nerdy, geeky, theological stuff I'd like to tell you about what's going on in these passages. I can't help myself. But in the simplest terms, what we need to be aware of is the Bible just told us that we are in Christ. If you're a Christian, you're in Christ. But then the Bible turns around and said, Christ is in you. Well, which one is it? Yes. It's both and. It's letter D, all the above. So Christ is in me and I am in Christ. How did I get there? Romans chapter 6 said God put me there. God put Christ in me. God put me in Christ. So if Christ is in me and I am in Christ and the Father always hears the prayers of Jesus, then what does that mean about my prayers? See, if I am in Christ and Christ is in me and when I pray, I'm praying to the Father, then what that means is, is that the Father hears Jesus, I am in Jesus, Jesus is in me, and so my prayers always get heard by the Father. But it's only because of Jesus. 
The only rights and the only privilege that I have to enter into the throne room of God Almighty and make my request and my petitions known is through my Redeemer. And my Redeemer lives. My Redeemer is in me. I am in my Redeemer. And because God hears Christ, God hears me. Think about that. And see, David is hinting at something very similar. David knows he needs a sacrifice. And David knows that in order for God to hear him, he has to have the right heart. Remind yourself in your prayer closet that God hears your prayers in and because of Christ. Come to God making your petitions known in and through his son who is in you. Number next in verse 3, let's read it. For strangers have risen against me, ruthless men seek my life, they do not set God before themselves. What's happening here? What's the second thing that David is asking God to do? Well, the thing I want to pick up on in this verse is that David just gets real with God. David gets real with God. David's not trying to save face in the presence of the Lord. I think very, very often... People are reluctant to admit they have a problem because they're worried about other, what others might think about them. We're, and then see, we carry that over into our relationship with God. Well, if I say this to the Lord, then he might think this about me. God already knows everything about you more than you ever thought about knowing about your own self. And he loves you anyway. God knew everything that you've said, everything that you've done that was wicked, rotten, and sinful, and yet he sent Christ to die for you anyway. God loves you. He's committed to you. He knows you better than you know your own self. David was not worried about saving face with God or other people. He was brutally honest with God on many occasions and spoke openly before God and man about his troubles. I want you to think about something, something that we didn't even mention that we'll talk about in the Sunday school class for Psalms. But think about Psalm 51, David's psalm of repentance for his sin with Bathsheba and against Uriah. You remember the little child dies. There's an adulterous affair that takes place. There's a murder. Horrible, horrible situation. But think about David being so open about his problems and being so transparent with God and Israel that he writes an entire psalm. And as the Jews are coming into the temple for worship, they're singing about their king's sin and repentance. Think about that. When was the last time you thought, you know, I want somebody to write a song about my sin? We're not that open. You know, after all, we're dignified. We want folks to think that we're far more spiritual than we really are. We're afraid that somebody might actually find out that we are sinners. To be very careful. David's not like that. He says, Lord, here it is. He lays it all out on the table. Isn't that what... The people who come seeking healing from Jesus do. They don't care what anybody thinks about them. They're trying to get to Jesus. They're going to press through the crowd. They're going to put people down through roofs to be healed. They're going to come and touch the hem of his garment. They don't care about what anybody thinks about them. 
So many times as I've witnessed to people in the world, you know, and my friends as I was saved out of a pretty rough background, I found that people were afraid of what people were going to think about them. And eternity is on the line. Your relationship with God is at stake. David knows that. He gets real with God. He gets detailed with God. I mean, you get the impression that David talks to God and tells him all the gory details, every last bit of it. Don't be afraid to get real with God. If you're feeling bitter against the Lord, tell him that. He's waiting to hear from you. If you feel betrayed by your closest friends and allies, tell God. He's waiting to hear from you. If you feel like you need to be detailed about what you're experiencing, all the way down to the gory details. I mean, stuff that you wouldn't even tell anybody else, you can tell the Lord. He can handle it. He's got broad shoulders. God's got real thick skin. Did you know that? You're not going to offend Him. He is a loving Father, and just like the father of the prodigal son, He's waiting for you to come home. To come home and confess to come home and be honest and transparent with him about the betrayals, the hurts, the anxieties that you feel. Thirdly, he recalls who God really is in verse 4. Behold, God is my helper. The Lord is the upholder of my life. One of the dangers when we start being detailed and being real and open with God, one of the great dangers is, is that we start wallowing in our sin. We start self-pitying Oh, pitiful pearl, my grandmother used to say. Pitiful pearl. I have a bad day or something was going on and she'd say, I was pitiful pearl visiting again. And there's some truth to that, isn't there? We feel this sort of self-pity. That's one of the most disgusting things about King Saul. He was so self-pitying. Self-absorbed is what happens to us. This even happened to the great man Job. He was self-absorbed. He begins to self-pity. Don't do that. Take your problems to God, but as much as you tell God about your problems, declare who God is. Look at verse 4. Behold, God is my helper. The Lord is the upholder of my life. He will return the evil to my enemies in your faithfulness put an end to them. Just as much as David reminds himself of his troubles and he's detailed with God and he brings his depressed, despised spirit to the Lord, rejected and dejected, just as much as David does that, he declares who God is. And prayers that do not, I'm always reminded of this. Maybe somebody will help me. Pastor Joel, you didn't declare who God was in your prayer today. I need to be doing that, don't you? We need to be reminding ourselves of who the Lord is. How gracious, how merciful, how loving, how kind. God always vindicates his servants. Casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. 1 Peter 5 and verse 7. Peter's actually quoting the next psalm. Psalm 55 and verse 22. Casting all your anxieties on him? Somebody says, well, what do I want to cast my anxieties on the Lord for? He doesn't want them. Oh, yes, he does. Why? Because he is a good and gracious and loving and caring Heavenly Father, and he's waiting to hear from you and I. 
Isaac Watts, our God, our help in ages past, our hope for years to come, be thou our guard while troubles last and our eternal home. Isn't that beautiful? He's giving his rendition of the 90th Psalm. Because God is self-sufficient, God wants to be my all-sufficient. No matter what trial, no matter what trouble, no matter what hurt I'm bearing, God wants me to come to him. In conclusion, a man of sorrows. It's hard to think about this psalm. Save me, O God, by your name. Strangers are attacking me. Surely God is my help. He has delivered me from all my troubles. It's hard to read those lines in Psalm 54 and not think of Christ. Because as much as David was despised and rejected and dejected and pursued and betrayed, the true King of Kings, Christ Jesus the Lord, was far more betrayed than David will ever be and had ever been. The Father did hear the Father did help. The Father did save Jesus when Jesus called on him. The Father also heard, helped, and saved David. And you and I can be sure that Jesus will also hear, help, and save us when we come to him as David did. Let's pray. Father, for anyone here this morning that has never truly been born again, Father, we pray that this would be the morning of the rest of their life. Lord, if there be any here this morning that do not know you as their personal Lord and Savior, I pray that today would be the day before it is everlasting too late. If there's anyone here this morning that's never truly been saved, never had a clear presentation of the gospel, please just let someone know. We'd love to talk to you. I would love to speak with you. As the musicians are going to come and sing the invitation this morning, have you been betrayed and rejected, despised, dejected, pursued? Someone knifed you in the back? Perhaps God is waiting to hear from you. Go to the Lord with all of your troubles.